good morning, good morning. Welcome to you who are here and to you in Zoom. It looks like we might have like as almost as big a crew in Zoom as we had in person. Um, yeah, so I'm glad. Thank you, Connie, for being up for hosting that. Um, all right. So it started abruptly, and within a few days, it felt like the whole world had changed. To be sure, there had been murmurings about this growing threat for a few months, but then high-profile celebrities and athletes and others in business or politics started getting sick. And suddenly, within a few days, mid-March 2020, our phones were flooded with, what, cancellation emails, school is canceled, the office is closing temporarily, this or that event is being postponed. Church will gather for the first time online this Sunday. I'm talking, of course, about the very beginning stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, that, that earliest stage when within a week or so, like the world hard pivoted to Zoom. Stay-at-home orders were imposed. Supermarkets started queuing people up outside, only letting in a few at a time to shop. Dots were like placed on the sidewalks for the first time, outside the store or by the register, indicating stay six feet apart. It was the moment where all of a sudden socializing on Zoom felt like such a novelty. Let's do a Zoom happy hour or crafting club or game night. Folks who hadn't touched their kitchen appliances in months were suddenly stuck at home. So like, why not make sourdough bread? Y'all remember this? The very first phase of the pandemic. But of course, it wasn't the last. Within months, things shifted again. We realized all together there was no going back to normal. But another phase within the new normal began. By summer, mask wearing had become the norm. It had not been before. A variety of cloth masks with every cute design possible came on the market. Masks became like the new accessory to flaunt your style, protect yourself, and signal to others you care about community health. We began to move from total isolation or just our households to this strange phenomenon of social bubbles where you had to choose a few other people who could socialize with you to lessen the isolation. Folks eventually started to gather outdoors, but still carefully, lots of distance. Remember those parks drew circles in the grass, carefully measured six feet apart. Restaurants started opening up their parklets in the street, allowing folks from the same household or maybe the same social bubble to dine together but always making sure tables were at least six feet apart. The next phase of the pandemic. By the following winter, shots were going in arms. It felt like maybe the tide was turning. There was light at the end of the tunnel. Folks awaited their turn to get that precious vaccine appointment, eagerly refreshing the appointment websites to, to snag the spot. Social media feeds filled up with photos of people proudly bearing their arms, showing off their band-aids, gratefully suffering the side effects of the shots if it meant this COVID nightmare was coming to an end. Proof of vaccination to enter a store or an event space or an airplane started becoming a thing. 
along with an emerging backlash against vaccination, against asking for proof, against mask wearing in public spaces, another phase of the pandemic. Of course, I could go on. The phases I've just described roughly track by my estimation about the first year of this pandemic life. And in the year and a half beyond, we've gone through more phases, more changes, more adaptations in terms of how the world has had to live due to the changes in our understanding and our growing levels of immunity, as well as the tools available to combat this virus we've come to know as COVID-19. I don't need to detail them all. I know you remember them. You lived them too, right? But I start with this example at looking at some of these phases of COVID life, because I think that considering the phases we've all lived through in this last couple of years highlights for us the overall theme we're in the midst of considering this fall at Haven. This is the second Sunday in the series I'm calling Community Evolving. And in this series, we're thinking through together how things grow, how they adapt, how they change, not just in the natural biological world, but in other spheres as well, including in our spirituality and in its practice. And I believe it's healthy for faith to naturally grow and change over time. And so this fall, we're considering together what that could look like for us, not just to travel our own personal journeys of evolution, but also what it might mean to do that collectively in some way. So today I want to focus on a theme that I think is pretty foundational to this whole concept of spiritual evolution, and that's the evolving of our understanding. Our understanding evolving. What do I mean by that? all of us age, as we age, as we grow, as we develop, it's not just our bodies that change, right? It's not just the way we think about the world, but th I mean, that changes too. The amount of information we've accumulated, the way our experiences shape us, all of those also contribute to our understanding evolving over time as well. We think about things differently than we used to, and that's good. It means we're learning, right? It means we're growing. And this evolution and understanding, it's not limited to the realms of just like what we've learned about math or science or history or even the vast work of adulting. Um, but our understanding of faith and spirituality should also be naturally evolving. Now, I've been interested in this question of how we socially and spiritually evolve in some way for a while. And as such, I've, I've paid attention through the years to a number of different models that have been proposed for various phases or stages of spiritual development that a lot of folks tend to move through in life. Not unlike the phases of COVID we all went through in 2020 and beyond, just spread out generally over a much longer period of time. So personally, I have found these like models of development to be pretty helpful. Not because they always map perfectly onto every situation I think I've ever encountered, but I think it's just helpful when we think about something as deeply personal, but also as intangible as our theology, as our understanding, as our faith, to remember that though we each have our own journeys, which are unique to us, none of us are completely in isolation as human beings. We're evolving alongside one another. And, and actually, the ways we evolve can actually bear a lot of resemblance to how others evolve. 
And when we look at lots of individuals, as well as groups and societies, we find patterns emerge. And sometimes I think it's helpful to step outside of ourselves a little bit and understand that the process we find ourselves in is actually bigger than just our own unique experience. Our process is shaped by these cultural and social forces beyond us, as well as the natural stages of life we're passing through. And, they ha and then to have some broader context for all of that can be helpful, especially when we find ourselves in the process of some sort of significant growth spurt or meaningful shift. It can be grounding to see that shift alongside the shifts that others have experienced in similar ways. It can help us get a sense not just of where we've been, where we currently are, but also where we might be going. Now, I don't have time to consider all of these models of development and tell you all about them this morning. I've seen ones that are very simple, only two or three stages may be named, to ones that are pretty complex. I think potentially one of the most interesting intellectually models I've come across um, is called spiral dynamics. And it deals not just with the development of individuals, but whole societies throughout history. And in this model, there are currently at least eight phases that have been identified with more expected to emerge in the future as humans and their societies continue to evolve. And I don't have time to go through all eight phases of spiral dynamics today. Maybe in some other context in the future, if any of you are interested, you know, we can find a way to do that. But I'll share a simpler model for us this morning that has been influenced by spiral dynamics as well as some of the other models that have um, come forward through the years. And I think it does a pretty good job of synthesizing a lot of the main ideas. And so this comes from speaker and writer Brian McLaren. And it can be found in a couple of his recent books. He also shared it during the recent Evolving Faith Conference that some of us may have tuned into. And I think he does a good job of synthesizing them some things. So I'll go ahead and share his model. He has four stages that he identifies people moving through. Okay, the first phase he calls simplicity. Okay, simplicity. As Brian describes it, this first stage is one of simple binaries. It's the stage we start in as children. The world is understood through very clear categories that are intended to help us comprehend it and stay safe within it. So it's inherently dualistic by nature. Things are usually explained as this or that, right? This serves the child to keep things clear. The milk is safe to drink. The detergent is not safe, right? Very clear, safe, dangerous, right, wrong. Us, them. This is the way we understand the world in the simplicity stage. And folks in the simplicity stage tend to be very dependent on voices of authority, like young children with their parents and their teachers. Those authority figures keep things clear. They define the categories. And faith in this stage is often essentially about accepting the categories that you're given and living consistently within them. So some people stay in this simplicity stage their whole life, and it serves them well. But as Brian names, increasingly more and more of us, probably at a younger and younger age, do move on. We encounter realities that push us beyond simplicity to the next stage. And this is what McLaren calls complexity. Stage two, complexity. 
this is where we begin to deal with nuance. It becomes clear that black and white alone can't really be the only categories. There, there must be at least some gray. So we move from perceiving dualistically this or that to more pragmatically. We become very pragmatic. In this case, we might do this. In this case, we might do that. The phase is more self-confident, independent. We become more used to thinking for ourselves, making our own determinations about the best way to do things. We become goal-oriented. Am I walking out of it or we're good? We become problem-solving, focused on achieving success or at least avoiding failure. We may move from putting all of our trust in authority figures to actually becoming sources of authority. Faith in this stage might be considered a kind of means to an end. We are following God-sanctioned, hashtag blessed path to achieve our best life now. And some of us might stay and live much of our life in this complexity stage. But many of us, perhaps more and more of us, at some point find ourselves moving forward further into a third stage. From complexity, Brian would say we move on to perplexity. Complexity to perplexity. This third stage often follows that process of finding more and more and more gray between the black and white. Perhaps we experience an epic failure of what felt like the promises of the complexity stage. That best life now doesn't hold together. And when that happens, you might look at the setup you've been living with with new eyes. You might see the idols in your midst, as we've sometimes called them. The constructs you've been building your world upon seem to collapse under the weight of scrutiny. Pragmatism gives way to suspicion, skepticism, and cynicism. In perplexity, we see that the binaries of simplicity, they're not just incomplete. We got that in complexity. But we actually see how they're actually pretty problematic, even damaging, because we see how they're often established through power and privilege and upheld through oppression and exploitation. In perplexity, we may recognize the harm that those systems to uphold simplicity and complexity have brought to either ourselves or those we care about. Here we learn to question authority, to challenge it, to push beyond the simple popular narratives and look for the hidden secrets, the untold stories, the skeletons in the closet. We care about authenticity. We care about honesty. But if we're honest, we also wonder if any claim of truth can really be trusted. Faith in this stage can feel like an obstacle to critical thinking. We may feel like a lot more comfortable with doubt if we're honest, than faith. And in this phase, we may find ourselves feeling isolated from others, unmoored, a bit hopeless, that we could actually experience joy and meaning again. Honestly, I'd guess that a number of us in this room know what I'm describing when I talk about the perplexity phase. Like we've been there. Like maybe we are there now. We may have been in actually this space a long time, and we wonder if there's any other space to be in. 
Because truthfully, I think a lot of our Bay Area, justice conscious, waking up to the idols of white supremacy and heteronormativity and capitalism and all the things, um, we are in this stage right now as a, as a culture. But perhaps the very fact that we are here here at Haven in a spiritual community, participating to whatever degree we are, testifies to the fact that some part of us still hopes for something more. Maybe we still hope there is meaning beyond cynicism, connection beyond isolation, faith beyond doubt. And to us, teachers like McLaren would point us to another stage that they believe more and more folks are starting to inhabit. It's a stage that Brian McLaren calls harmony, stage four, harmony. And in this stage, we begin to integrate all the stages we've passed through. We become perhaps a bit cynical about our cynicism. We begin to find something on the other side of it. Our relationship to certainty and uncertainty shifts. We become more comfortable with what Brian McLaren calls intelligent unknowing. We also can appreciate the journey and the role of all the stages that they've played along the way. We understand that they all have belonged, that they were all somewhat inevitable. They were all necessary parts of our evolving. We can have compassion on ourselves and on the journey we've been on. We can see that simplicity served us in some way and it was the best we could do at the time. Same is true for complexity, and perplexity, and they can exist now in harmony with one another. In this stage, we no longer feel the need to despise and reject everything that's come before. That might have happened earlier. We also don't need to look at stages ahead with anxiety and fear, but we can recognize that all of the stages matter. They all have the capacity to make us wiser, more critically thinking, more open to mystery kind of human beings. Brian describes faith in this phase as a humble, reverent openness to mystery that expresses itself in non-discriminatory love. We see how we carry with us the strengths and weaknesses of the stages that have come before. We notice at times we can still have a tendency to think dualistically or become super pragmatic, or fall into hypercriticism and cynicism, but we can accept those parts of ourselves, along with the gifts that each of those stages has brought us. We might see authority figures in a new way, um, not as people who have all the answers, but as flawed human beings, just like we are, in their own process of becoming. And we can accept their imperfections as well as appreciate their strengths. And in this stage, we can finally live into the phrase that Ken Wilbur of Spiral Dynamics spoke of. We can do something he called include and transcend. Include and transcend. We can recognize that core parts of all of our stages of understanding can come forward with us as we continue to evolve. We build on what we've learned, including the beautiful pieces and the partial truths that each stage offers and transcending the limitations of the stages that no longer serve us. We include and transcend, or we transcend and include. 
Now, Ken Wilber and others like Brian McLaren following him may have popularized this phrase in recent years, include and transcend, transcend, include. But they weren't the first, I think, to live into that way of being. I don't think they were the first to integrate understanding from a previous phase of development to build on it and develop it further, right? To include the core good truths that the understanding revealed and also transcend the pieces that no longer serve. I believe this was what made Jesus such a unique, dynamic teacher, one who mesmerized audiences with his preaching because I think Jesus was speaking to folks from an integrated place. His audiences may have been primarily in stages one and two, but I think he was speaking to them from a stage four beyond kind of place, calling them forward in understanding. Like, let's look at the heart of what he is saying and perhaps the most famous block of teaching we have, this passage in Matthew that's become known in the Jesus tradition as the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have time to look at the whole sermon, but we can look at some highlights, okay? So I'm going to just pick out some places where I feel like I see some of this happening. Picking things up in Matthew 5, starting with verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, he said, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, Jesus is making clear he's not interested in simply replacing whatever has come before with something totally different. He's not here to dispense with the way his fellow Jewish community members understand the practice of faith through obedience to the Torah. He sees his own work to be a development of what has come before. He is fulfilling the goals of the Torah. He is helping accomplish what those laws set out to do. You could say he is meeting simplicity and complexity where they're at and moving things forward. So he's not abolishing. That's what someone in stage three perplexity might try to do. It's just get rid of it all. He's integrating. He's developing. And we see that as he makes a series of contrasts between what has been spoken before, what has been understood once, and how he's inviting his followers to consider and understand. Picking it up in verse 21, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. A few verses later, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, a few verses later, it has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. In verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. 
in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So if you were counting, that was six. Six contrasts in a row between what has been understood before and what Jesus is inviting his followers to understand now. And in each of them, he's reaching beyond the rule, beyond the law itself. He's reaching to the intention behind it. He's developing it. He's asking his audience not to simply focus on the dualistic right versus wrong, but on the moral reasoning beneath the understanding, allowing them to take it forward. So don't kill people. That is certainly a very helpful corrective in a tribal violent world that often solves its problems through physical violence. Stop killing people is an important corrective. But even better is to understand the violence of the heart, the way that our very anger with one another, our disrespect for our fellow human beings destroys our capacity to connect with them, to see the divine image in them. Let's go beyond don't kill. Let's focus on the violence of our hearts. In a patriarchal culture where women's rights and protection are secured through marriage, don't sleep around. Don't just divorce your wife at any, any need, any, any desire. Those are helpful correctives to the men who hold the power in order to protect the vulnerable women and children. But even better, teaching these men not to objectify women, to begin to see them as whole human beings, not simply sexual objects there for men's pleasure or to build their little family empires. Don't break your oath. That's an important corrective in a world where you have no way to check the facts. Things are not written down. Your word is your bond. But it's better not to need to be bound by an oath or a contract. It's better to cultivate integrity and trust through a personal commitment to truth and honesty. In a world where violent retribution was actually the norm, you hurt me, you hurt my family, I come after you hard, as hard as I can, and I show you, you're not going to mess with me. In that kind of world, an eye for an eye was actually a helpful corrective. It told the injured party not to respond with uncontrolled vengeance, but be proportional. Do not give more pain than you just received. But even better, even more evolved, is to not give pain at all to respond not with retribution, but with restoration of relationship. To not simply love your friends, but also demonstrate love to those who have not been loving toward you. Now, if we stay within the framework of stage one or two, which honestly, if someone like Brian McLaren is right, most faith communities exist in those stages, he would say that probably 85 to 95% of our churches are not particularly welcoming to folks in stages three or, more, or four. 
They make it hard to be there. If we read the Sermon on the Mount from a stage one or two place, I think it feels like it's Jesus adding more rules on top of rules. Rules that feel like potentially impossible to actually keep all these standards. But from an integrated point of view, from a harmony point of view, I think Jesus is transcending and including. He's moving his followers beyond the limitations of the past stage, beyond the divorce certificates and the oaths and the violent reprisals. As he moves forward, he's including the best from what came before in the ethics. He's teaching the ethics of nonviolence, respect for women and the vulnerable, integrity, peacemaking. He's inviting his followers to develop in their understanding. He's encouraging the community to evolve. Later in Matthew, in chapter 13, Jesus is doing more teaching, and he shares all these depictions of the loving, cooperative order he calls the kingdom of God through a series of stories we've come to call parables. And at the end of sharing story after story, all of these parables, he asks the question, of the closest disciples. In verse 51, he says, have you understood all these things? Have you, have you gotten the parables in some way that I'm trying to tell you? Jesus asks. Yes, they replied. And he said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. New treasures as well as old. I think Jesus wants his disciples to do as he has done, to integrate, hang on to the essentials of what's come before. These are the treasures of old. And receive the unfolding understanding that's coming now. These are new treasures. What a gift. What a bounty we can experience when we can allow ourselves and our communities to appreciate and enjoy that which has come before and that which is we receive today, and what promise life can actually hold when we can look forward to even more new treasures emerging tomorrow as well. Because in these models of development, like I shared with you today, some, like Brian's model, spiral dynamics, evolution doesn't end whenever you reach the last stage. For McLaren, integration means you recognize new spaces of growing and changing. Harmony gives way to like starting the whole thing over again. Recognizing there are new areas of simplicity that you're growing into that eventually become complexity and perplexity. And you can appreciate the gifts along the way as you move in an ever-expanding spiral of growing understanding. You can embrace the journey of evolving and expect it will always be the way of things. As Brian says, for from feeling, far from feeling we've finally arrived, in stage four we finally begin to understand that arrival has never been the point. I think many of us might feel at times like we haven't known how to reconcile the places of beauty or power or transcendence we may have experienced in an earlier phase of life. With the painful realities we've become acquainted with in a later phase. 
our experiences of faith and hope have at times felt like they crumbled. Along with the structures we had to tear down as we emerged from simplicity or complexity into what came after. And that can lead to a lot of pain. It can be hard and lonely to live in the fog of perplexity. And yet we cannot skip over it either. We can't just will ourselves through it. Right now I have three kids in my household living through various phases of the perplexing state of development we call puberty. And I can see in each of them challenges of that stage in different ways. Their bodies are all doing what they are intended to do. So at times they're growing very quickly. We're going through a lot of clothing. Um, their hormones are saturating them in new ways. Emotions run high at times and feel just so freaking big. The world can feel inviting and exciting one moment and terrifyingly disappointing and horrible the next. And all of it belongs. As a parent, I feel at times both helpless. <laughs> I'm the one who's been used to the earlier years where problems seemed easily solvable with a hug and some fruit snacks. But I'm also empathetic as one who survived puberty myself, lived to tell the tale. I cannot make it all better for them, right? And that wouldn't actually serve it, serve them if I tried. They need to go through it, each of them, on their own. They need to live it in their own bodies, in their own developing brains, in their own emotional centers, in their own spirits. I can't take it away. I can't do it for them. But I can be a loving presence on the other side of the perplexity, encouraging them along the way, calling them forward towards something harmonious to come. When I look at Jesus and the way that he relates to his disciples and others he connects with, I see such compassion in him. I see such compassion. Those moments when he just cries like a parent for the folks he's encountering. I see him reflecting this divine parent looking with understanding at the perplexed, angsty teens among him, affirming in them all they have learned in their development thus far, and encouraging them in all the ways they still have to develop. I think about his last moments with his closest followers. Jesus again and again promises that though he has to physically leave them, he sees his earthly life is coming to a close. He is not abandoning them. The same wise, compassionate presence of the divine parent that they have experienced in him, he promises it will be with them too. And that presence will accompany them as they evolve, helping them hold on to what was and grow into what will be. I'll share these words of Jesus speaking of this Holy Spirit. I'm going to use feminine pronouns for that divine presence we call the Spirit. 
He says this in John. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when she, the spirit of truth, comes, she will guide you into all the truth. She will not speak on her own. She will speak only what she hears, and she will tell you what is yet to come. Friends, I believe that same compassionate presence of the divine that Jesus called the Holy Spirit, that she is here with us too. She is witnessing our evolving, even when we're in the most perplexing of phases, even when we don't know how to reconcile the past with the present. She's walking with us through the fog, calling us onward to one another, encouraging us that there are places of harmony to travel to. So Haven, we are a community evolving. We have within us many stories. We have within us much wisdom. We have within us many wounds. We have much to transcend and much to include. So may we be a space that encourages that harmonious work in one another. May we be a space that pursues that harmonious work together. And may we be a space that receives the voice of Jesus, encouraging us that there are treasures, new and old, to discover. And as we allow her, may the Holy Spirit continue to guide us into all truth. Amen. Amen.